The Social Detective is an independent podcast. It is for educational and awareness only. Some of the information is based on our opinion, as we will state in the podcast. Information can be triggering to some individuals, so please listen wisely. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Come hang out with me every Friday to catch new weekly true crime episodes. If you're new to Hell No, then there are many episodes to catch up on, such as episode 70, which features three different mysterious hotel deaths from around the world. The first case covered in that episode is a tragic and bizarre whodunit. The coroner and detectives almost missed the clues that pointed to the killer. Had it not been for a private detective hired by the deceased man's wife, this case would have had a totally different outcome. I can guarantee you won't guess what police missed. Find this episode and many more at Hell No, a true crime podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Or head on over to Hell No underscore a true crime podcast on Instagram and follow the link in the bio. Thanks for listening and see you there. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. And you may have noticed here recently that we've re-released a couple of podcasts because it is the anniversary of when those cases occurred. The first one was the Dolly Madison Bakery murders that happened in Great Bend, Kansas. On September 4th of 2002, a delivery truck driver found 79-year-old Mary Drake and 24-year-old Mandy Alexander dead inside the bakery. And they were killed in a savage and horrendous way. If you've already listened to the podcast, you will know all about it. We did an interview with Desiree Worth, Mandy Alexander's sister. Erin Mall, who is from the Great Bend area, has an amazing documentary where they are trying to get answers on the case. Now, the KBI says they have new DNA evidence. They are, go they are getting closer to finding the killer. That was last year. There still is no information yet, and the families are really wanting justice. That's why we re-released it. We're hoping that somebody who knows something can help them get closer to any type of information. Another case that we released occurred on September 5th of 2001, and that marked the disappearance of Jaquilla Scales. Jaquilla was only four years old when she was last seen in her bed around 1230 in the morning. And she was discovered missing, though, around 3 a.m. in the 1600 block of North Volusia in Wichita, Kansas. What's really odd is the family had a chow in the backyard of their house. Nobody heard any barking. Jaquilla was in bed initially with family members, and then she was just gone. Everybody had been searching nobody has found or seen anything. Her mother, Eureka, has been desperately trying to find out what happened to her daughter. 
we re-release those cases hoping somebody will come forward and somebody has some information. We also have a case that we do have some good news on. And a couple of months ago, we had released a case discussing Ernie Ortiz. Ernie Ortiz was a gregarious restaurant owner and a musician from Garden City, Kansas. And just this past Wednesday, it was announced by the Garden City Police Department that U.S. Marshals located and arrested a woman who was wanted in connection with the deadly shooting that occurred on September 12, 2019 at his restaurant Conquistador in Garden City, Kansas. Since his death, his family and the Garden City Police Department, they never wavered in their pursuit for justice. They knew the most important thing was keeping Ernie's face and case on everyone's radar. Ernie was chosen to be the five of hearts on the Kansas cold case deck. As well as the reward for answers in his case, it kept getting increased over the years by amazing donors. Then this past Wednesday, Samantha Jo Smith, who is 32 years old, she was arrested and she faces multiple charges for her involvement in the shooting death of Ernie Ortiz. When the U.S. Marshals found and arrested her, she was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Three months prior, the Garden City Police Department had obtained an arrest warrant for first-degree murder and aggravated robbery. The police said that the department worked with the U.S. Marshals to find Smith because she moved out of Kansas. Hmm, wonder why. Now, again, the deadly shooting was reported in September of 2019. Garden City officers had responded to the area of Buffalo Jones Avenue and Bancroft Street for a person reported down. When they arrived, that's when officers found Ernie Ortiz lying in the parking lot of El Conquistador restaurant with gunshot wounds. Ortiz was transported to St. Catherine Hospital, where he later died. Soon after Ernie's death, there was an arrest and a person was charged with Ernie's murder. Then, in December of 2020, the charges were dismissed without prejudice. Although the Finney County District Attorney said charges could be filed again in Ernie's death if new or additional charges or evidence is found. As you guys remember, I talk a lot about Hannah King with Cake News. She also aired an amazing segment on Ernie's case, keeping his face out there. Several podcasts were done and recorded and aired on Ernie's case. That's what it's about, keeping these cases out there and letting everyone know we need information. The family needs justice. And that's what it takes to get information on these cases and move these cases forward. So if you think what you're doing when you share these cases doesn't make a difference, this is evidence that they do. Ernie's family is almost there. They are almost there in getting justice.
We're hoping that the efforts that we can do in today's case, maybe we can do the same thing. Even though this case is 44 years old, Mary Krupper, she deserves justice. Her family deserves to know what happened the night of September 8th, 1979. In this case, it was around 5 p.m. on a regular Saturday in Wichita, Kansas, again on September 8th, 1979. Richard Krupper gives his wife Mary around $5 to run to the local store to pick up some items, they decide to have spaghetti for dinner. But his wife, it's over an hour and she doesn't return home. Richard gets a little concerned. He decides to, now the kids are at home as well, but Richard decides to hop in his car and run to the nearby farmer's market. Now in the past, when I talk about the farmer's market, a lot of people think it's one of those outdoor farmer's market. Farmer's Market is actually the name of a local grocery store. It's located at 2901 North Broadway here in, in Wichita, Kansas. It's just a regular grocery store. So Richard retraces the steps Mary would have normally taken in hopes he can come across her car. You know, it's weird to hope, you know, your wife broke down or got a flat because you're just hoping it's something normal. But Richard, he finds no sign of her white 1973 station wagon. He also finds no sign of his wife, Mary Krupper. Mary would be the last person you would ever expect to go missing or to run off or anything like that. They had a good marriage. Mary was a part-time substitute teacher, and she also taught upholstery classes at the local Wichita Votech. Richard Krepper, he's concerned. He's, this is not like her. This is not normal. So he calls the Wichita Police Department. They also retrace her steps to the farmer market, and they start to find out it's not the first time the Wichita Police Department has visited the farmer's market. Shortly before Mary Krepper would have arrived to the store, police were called to investigate an assault of a 20-year-old woman. She informed police that she had been shopping at the store when she noticed a man following her. She gets creeped out. She decides, oh, I'm deucing out of here. I'm getting out of the store. But the guy approaches her in the parking lot and he tries to force her into his vehicle. But she manages to get away, and the parking lot was far enough out that she had to run to a nearby guardhouse of Cargill Meat Industries. It was, I, I ended up doing a little bit more research of how the parking lot is positioned from the store and where the guardhouse was. So she must have been parked pretty far out to decide to run to the guardhouse instead of running back to the store. And so the guard though, she must have seen the guard inside and the guard and the guy, the guy sees the guard and he decides, oh, this is not cool. So he decides to get the hell out of there and he gets in his car and he takes off. 
that's when she decides to call the police. But police at first, they aren't thinking that there could be anything similar with these two cases. The woman's 20, Mary's 47. They decide to put on an alert for Mary Krepper. She's a 47-year-old woman. She's wearing glasses, jeans, and a blue short sleeve sweatshirt. Her husband says he knows she couldn't have run off. She only had $5 on her, and she is not the sort to do this. Things are going great. She was grabbing things to make spaghetti. He knows she was coming right back, and she would never leave without the kids. Scouring Wichita, trying to find Mary Krepper. But then, four days later, on Wednesday, September 12th, the search comes to an end. Someone spots her white station wagon and contacts the police department. It was found in a residential area. They get the police there. Now, Lieutenant Bernie Jarowski, we talk about this in the podcast we did before. He's the primary investigator. And we also talked about him in the Poet case. And you can go back to that case in our archives. That's the case about Ruth Finley and the Poet. Lieutenant Bernie Drowski became really good friends with Ruth Finley and her husband. Ruth Finley was really saturating the police time at the time of the Poet case. And the Poet case was happening around the same time as Mary Krepper's disappearance. Lieutenant Drowski had his hands full. But the Poet case, it ends up coming out sometime years later that the entire case had been fabricated. It had been fabricated at the cost of the city manpower. And even though the police chief wanted charges filed because he felt like there was malicious intent, the DA did not believe there was any malicious intent. So that's how that case ended up. But Lieutenant Bernie Drowski, it's that guy. Let's just keep that in mind as we're going through this case. But the Poet case, they're still believing there is another psycho out there sending letters beyond BTK at this time. Just two months prior to Mary Krupper station wagon being found, Ruth Finley had been stabbed herself and police had ramped up her protection and accelerated the investigation into her case. It's later found out that she had done this to herself, but that's what was going on around the same time as Mary had gone missing. Now, Drowski tells reporters that a neighbor said they had seen a man drive the white station wagon to the spot they find it at around 10 p.m. the Saturday night Mary Krepper disappears. The neighbors said it was too dark and they were unable to give a description of the man. When police find the car, they find hamburger, a can of spaghetti sauce, and a bag of rolls and a sack of peanuts in the back of the car, showing that she'd been able to do her shopping first. She did her shopping, gets to the car, puts her items in the back of the car, she at least got that part done. 
before she was taken. Police had also found cigarette butts. They believed those cigarette butts were dumped from the ashtray of the passenger side of the car. They also found multiple fingerprints. Again, this case is 44 years old, so we don't know what shape those items are in now. However, it's hopeful. It's hopeful that there is some forensic evidence that police can do with these, especially with advanced science. Police believe they are getting somewhere. They have got fingerprints. They have got cigarette butts. They found her car. Surely they're going to find Mary. Mary wasn't in the car, so they've got hope that they're going to be able to find her alive. However, around 9.30 a.m., a police helicopter spots her body surrounded by trees and sunflowers. She was still fully clothed, laying on her back. The police believe she had been there since the night that she had gone missing. After an examination by the coroner's office, it was confirmed that she had indeed died that Saturday evening when she had gone missing. They determined that she had been strangled and the time of death was somewhere between 5 and 10 p.m. The press asked Lieutenant Drowski after the autopsy is released if Wichita needs to be worried. You know, they had heard there was some guy at the farmer's market abducting women. Is this the same guy who killed Mary Krepper? Do we have to be worried that there is a guy out there abducting and killing women? Lieutenant Drowski says, no, I, I just don't believe the cases are related. I think we're fine. Nothing to worry about. Don't worry your heads. But it all starts to come out that there is a little bit more going on here. Officers had actually received two reports of a man in a brown four-door maverick who had tried to force women into his car near the grocery store on North Broadway. The same grocery store Mary Krepper had been shopping just before she disappeared. And even the media is not buying into this, you don't need to be worried thing. They're concerned. Susan Edgerly with the Eagle and Beacon, is what it was called at that time, she had written the abduction event attempts occurred before and after the time police think Mary Krupper was abducted, which is why they do not think the cases are related. And she says this, very speculatively. And Drowski, he explains during his interview that day that her body was found that the man at the store had been trying to force women into his car. This man had abducted Mary Krupper in her own car. That's why he believed they weren't the same. Drowski also believed the timing of events would make it extremely difficult for this to be the same person. He just didn't think it could be the same person, which begs the, the difference of that would mean that there are two kidnappers at the same place 
at the same time, which is an extremely odd and rare situation. And even the papers are kind of saying, I don't really think this is a possibility. But the next day, Lieutenant Drowski, his tune changes. And this is what we're able to piece together of what all happened that day from witness reports. Around 4 p.m., a witness sees a man described in a composite leaning against a brown maverick at the farmer's market on North Broadway in Wichita, Kansas. He speaks to her and then follows her into the store, but he really creeps her out. So she decides, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm out of the store. But this woman, she doesn't tell anybody what happened. She just chalks it up as a creepy weirdo just being a weird, creepy weirdo. But after she hears about the abduction and everything going on and the death of Mary Kreber, that's when she comes forward to tell police what occurred. We also know that between 4.30 and 5 o'clock, Mary Krepper gets the $5 from her husband and heads out to pick some things from the same store to make their spaghetti dinner. Then between 5 and 5.30, the store clerk says she sees Mary Krepper in the store shopping. And that same man that they've described in this composite picture we're going to share is now following Mary Krepper around the store. The store clerk states that she had seen him actually attempting to engage Mary Krepper in conversation. Mary Krepper is trying to just stay away from him. Then Mary Krepper checks out and he, she sees him follow Mary Krepper out of the store. At 7.15 p.m., that's when the fourth witness is the one we had discussed earlier, the one who finally calls the police department about the brown maverick guy, the one who attempted to abduct the woman and she runs to the guardhouse. This is all coming together one week after Mary Krepper had been abducted and murdered. Two other abductions had already been attempted Lieutenant Drowski and the Wichita Department have basically been clinging to, well, I'm not quite sure, is he or isn't he? Did he do it or did he not? But it's all finally coming together. So this is what we have about the man. The man was medium complexion skin, possibly Hispanic. So 30 to 35 years old brownish hair. It was combed back on the sides and balding in the middle. He also wore dark rimmed glasses. Again, we're going to have a picture of this composite sketch on our Instagram and Facebook and all of our other social media. If anyone, if it triggers a memory, a thought process, anything, a tickle in your brain, please, reach out to the Wichita Police Department. One of the things that they really seemed to talk about a lot was this 
Brown Maverick. It was a 72 to 73 four-door Brown Maverick. And again, he took, they were talking about how clean it was, how shiny it was. And it was it kept in really good condition. It had chrome down the side and around the doors. So again, think about that. Think about a Brown Maverick back in the 70s. 72 to 73 four-door, kept in great condition. When he was talking and trying to pick the woman up, he said he was married at the time, but who knows if he was married, had a common-law wife, or maybe he was. Would family have noticed something odd about his behavior? This doesn't sound like something a man would do once. This sounds like a guy who already tried to abduct women multiple times. Could he have abducted women before? Mary Krepper wasn't the only body that had been found on the side of a road in 1979. The body of 20-year-old Wichitan Tamara Lynn Taylor was found with a rope around her neck in a ditch off of Oliver two miles into Harvey County, just five days before Christmas in 1979. Now this information is from the Wichita Eagle archive stories. The Wichita police had no suspects for four months. Then just before dawn on a Tuesday morning in April of 1980, Two Wichita police officers were running their usual license tag check on a van because it looked a little hinky. They discovered the van was registered to a completely different vehicle. The officers decide to follow this van and they follow it all the way to a driveway in Northeast Wichita. The police officers then approach the vehicle and they find out that driver was David Courtney. They asked David, can we search the vehicle? <laughs> Surprisingly, David says, oh yeah, go ahead, search it. While searching the vehicle, they find a box of 38 caliber ammunition inside. Guess what? The driver also had a 38 caliber Colt in a concealed shoulder holster. At the time, not a good thing. They also found inside the van, they found two letters. One was in a sealed envelope addressed to the district attorney. In the letter, Courtney wrote that he hoped to be dead by the time it was read. Police said the driver told them that he had been planning to blow his own head off. The letter detailed Taylor's kidnapping and killing. It also detailed a robbery in Phoenix and two Houston murders, as well as a New Orleans kidnapping and strangulation. David Courtney was arrested after telling detectives all about killing Taylor and his wife ends up getting arrested as well the same morning at a friend's farmhouse. It's stated that the couple were drifters who had 
basically moved all around the United States. And they had moved to Wichita around a year earlier. But, you know, it's kind of hinky of when and where they actually were because David Courtney was unemployed and his wife worked as a waitress. Police said that the Courtney's picked up Taylor, who was hitchhiking on East Kellogg. She wanted to visit her boyfriend in El Dorado. The couple took Taylor to their mobile home where she was for three days, handcuffed to a bed. And they did unspeakable things to her. The Courtney's then drove Taylor to Oklahoma where they planned to kill her. Instead, for some reason, they decided to return to Kansas. And that's where David Courtney strangles her with a rope as Donna Courtney is driving the van. We are going to get into the case of David Courtney. There is a lot of more meat on this bone here. It's, this case is insane. It's crazy between David and Donna. This is a murderous couple who did heinous acts. But you guys know, I like to get the family members involved. I think the family members are truly the best advocates. And I have been talking about this case in length with a family member of Tamara Lynn Taylor. And she wants to share Tamara's story. And her story as well. So we're going to plan to get into that more later on. One of the things I find truly sad beyond this one article, which is terrible, is either than that, you don't find a lot about Tamara Lynn Taylor. One of the other things that I find really interesting about this case and David Courtney is the similarities of the modus operandi between this case and Mary Krepper's case especially the mention of a wife when the guy had told the random guy with the maverick had told the other woman he tries to abduct that oh don't worry about it i have a wife it brings to mind that type of abduction because david courtney had donna courtney that didn't stop them from wanting to murder together so it kind of makes you wonder, were there other similarities between Mary Krepper's case and David Courtney? Because he obviously was hunting in the Wichita area at that time. David Courtney is no longer around. He died in prison. But it makes you want to look at that case. Talking about this, it also brings to mind another abduction that occurred in the 70s and close to this area. We have that podcast in our archives as well. It's a case that occurred in Reno County and the Reno County Sheriff's Department has reopened this case and is looking for more information on it. And that's the case of Gail Sorensen. On February 11th, 1977, Gail Sorensen leaves her job as a receptionist at Evergreen Manor Nursing Home at 2301 North Severance in Hutchison, Kansas, around 9.30 in the morning 
to make a bank deposit and run a few errands for her employer. It's worth noting that it's been stated in reports that she had eighteen to seventeen hundred dollars on her for the deposit, but only three hundred of that was in cash. After not returning to work, her coworkers become really worried and concerned. They notify her husband, who reports her missing. Gail's husband, Larry Sorensen, he was a serviceman, and he had not been in the area when Gail had gone missing, and they'd only been married for a few months. Gail was described as a quiet person who didn't have a lot of friends, and she definitely didn't have any enemies. So no one could really think of any harm coming to Gail, or that she could be in any trouble. A witness stated later that they did observe Gail's vehicle in the Dillon's parking lot. They were pretty sure it was Gail's vehicle because she had a very specific vehicle. They said that they observed a woman sitting in the driver's seat of the vehicle and an unknown white male was standing outside of the driver's door talking to the driver. They had assumed that the driver knew the man because they were laughing. The unknown man was described as 26 to 28 years old, about 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall, with shaggy brown hair, which was about collar length, and he was wearing wire-framed glasses with brown lenses and a red stocking cap. He also had a mustache and a goatee. Several days later, Gail Sorensen's body was discovered southeast of Hutchison along the Arkansas River. Her throat had been slashed and she had been sexually assaulted. There were reports of a white car being in that area around Saturday night or Sunday morning. The zippered bag for the bank deposit has never been found as well as Gail's purse. I have put out there that I've asked for pictures of what they might have looked like in case anybody might be able to identify it or has seen it. And I haven't heard anything back on that. So two years prior, a man had attacked a woman in a store parking lot with a knife multiple times. In one case, the man forced the woman to drive to a rural area where he sexually assaulted her. In the second case, when the man was threatening the woman, another car drove up and that frightened the man away so he wasn't able to harm the woman. But again, we have these stories of a man stalking women in grocery stores. And it reminds me of the Mary Kreppers case. But they are different cars. We have a van, we have a white car, we have a brown Maverick. Also differently is in Gail Sorensen's case, after that occurred, there was a crudely carved message found in a bathroom in Hutchison at the Cessna Fluids production plant. And it basically was carved in there and it said, I killed Gail Sorensen with the initials BN. The Reno County Sheriff's Office also called in the special, the Behavioral Sciences Unit with the FBI to try to get a profile of the killer. 
and there really wasn't anything put out more about that. The words, the stalker was also with a hooded figure was also found scrawled on the bathroom at Cessna. If anybody knows more about that, if anybody happens to remember from back in those days, it would be really interesting to hear back or to get more information on that. If you guys have anything or if you remember any talk around that time, I would love to hear from you. You can DM us on our social media. I would just like to hear more about that. Also, somebody had called into KWHK in Hutchison and they had talked or and they'd also actually Gail Sorensen had worked for KWHK. Sorry about that. So it was interesting when somebody called into KWBW radio that December and had a three hour conversation with that radio station about the Gail Sorensen murder. I don't know if they ever, of course, called the police and asked them to trace the number while they're on the phone for three hours, or if they had trapped the call in order to trace that number back. If that number had trapped back to Cessna, we never hear anything more on that. But these things are all just really interesting. And you wonder, could there be more information there that they could narrow back on the Gail Sorensen case? Between the 70s and early 80s, there were several women that have been abducted. And they're either still missing or their remains were located and their cases go unanswered. We focused our search within a 200 mile radius. So we've been looking into that and we've been trying to get information out on those cases. There wasn't just David Courtney who had been abducting women at that time that was on Wichita police radar. Everything had gone quiet until January 19th, 1980, and then 23-year-old Curly L. Shears, he's charged with two counts of kidnapping and two counts of aggravated robbery. These abductions took place in Northeast Wichita. The first occurred right by the Wesley Medical Center, and the second one was located at an IGA at 61st Street and North Broadway. Curly Shears used a butcher knife to intimidate women by putting it to their throats and then forcing them into their own cars. The first woman, she was forced while she was shopping at the IGA and he also made her cash a check for money. However, that victim ended up seeing a police officer and she made a break to run for it. Shears then grabs another woman and forces her into her car, and they made an attempt to flee, but he gets stuck in the mud. Now, police at that time believed he may have been working with a partner, which it could make up for the difference in appearance. I couldn't find a lot of information further from the Wichita Police Department showing whether they thought Curly Shears could have been the abductor from the other cases. A first article did say that they thought he might be the same abductor or he could be part of Mary Krepper's case, but then it's all lost. It unravels and you hear nothing further. 
I'm really interested to hear if there is any further. On Mary Krepper's case, at least, you hear they had cigarette butts. They thought they had DNA. They had fingerprints. Have they opened up any further on Mary Krepper's case? Or could they open up that forensic information to get more information on Mary Krepper's case? Mary Krepper's case is on their cold case investigative unit. So I don't know if it's open or just cold. But if you have any information, please call Detective Addie Perkins at 316-268-4379 or Detective Robert Chisholm at 316-268-4609. If you have any information on Gail Sorensen's case, you can call the Reno County Sheriff's Department at 624 2735. Remember, no matter how old these cases are, forensic advancements have made it that these colder cases are getting solved. It just takes us pushing the detectives to pull those boxes off the shelves and look at them again. But it takes all of you sharing those cases, sharing the hashtags, and pushing the detectives to get them back out there. So get the faces, get the cases, and help the families get justice. Thanks for listening.